we all like to think about things that we're good at. So self-awareness is, I am really good at this. I am really hitting it out of the park. Here are my strengths. And the key part of self-awareness is having that awareness, but also having an awareness of your weaknesses. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. How much does understanding our emotions determine how successful we can be in our jobs? How many of us really can understand what we're feeling in the moment we're feeling it? How does regulating my emotion and understanding someone else's enable me to stand up in a tough situation and be more persuasive? All of this is part of our emotional intelligence, and I'm excited to have a good friend of politicology, psychology professor Katherine Sanderson here to walk us through it. Catherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University, and she is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. Catherine, good morning, and as always, it's great to see you. Thanks for making the time today, and welcome back to Politicology. I really appreciate the invitation, and I will say that talking about emotional intelligence is really one of my favorite topics, so thanks for this invite. It's going to be great. I think the genesis of this conversation actually was something that I posted on Instagram that had to do with emotional intelligence. And you said, oh, this is such a great topic for politicology. And then we, here we are. So, um, And I don't remember what you posted. Do you? What did you post? I don't, I don't remember I, either. I have no idea what you posted, but I just remember thinking like, that would be cool to discuss. So, okay, well, there we go. <laughs> So why don't we start with um, what emotional intelligence, I think everyone will be familiar with IQ and, and IQ tests, intelligence tests, but we're talking about a different kind of intelligence. So emotional intelligence, abbreviated EQ. What is it? Why do we care about it? What are the factors that make it up? And maybe how do we measure it? Well, I can talk about all of those um, with, with, great, uh, <laughs> with, with great enthusiasm. But briefly, when we talk about emotional intelligence, it's an awareness. And it's, so it's an awareness that our emotions matter, that our emotions influence our behavior, and that emotions can have both positive and negative effects on us. So, so part of this concept is this general awareness. But it's also coupled with something else that's really important. And that's an ability to self-regulate, to basically manage emotions. And this could be your own emotions. It could be people around you. So it could be your colleagues, for example. And this ability to do management of emotions is particularly under particularly important during times of pressure, of stress, of deadlines, you know, when things don't go well. So when we talk about emotional intelligence broadly, it's all of those things. And, and what I think is so important to recognize is that, as you said, we all have heard about IQ, we know it matters, you know, et cetera. Obviously, there's some controversies about that, but that's a whole different topic. But what we often underestimate is this power of emotional intelligence in terms of predicting all sorts of outcomes in our lives. So if you look at the research, and there is a body of research, a lot of this work was done by Dan Goleman, who is at Yale. We know that people who are high in EQ have better health. That's true both physically and psychologically. They are happier. They have higher relationship satisfaction. That's in their personal relationships. It's in their professional relationships. And perhaps most important for our conversation today they tend to be more successful in their professional lives. So they're more successful in their careers. They're identified as natural leaders. They're more successful at starting businesses and so on. So basically what we know is that EQ matters and it really matters in fundamental ways in a broad way across our lives. So let's start with self-awareness and then we'll move to self-regulation and beyond. So there's 
research by uh, organizational psychologist Tasha Yorick that shows that 95% of people think think they're self-aware, right? But only 10 to 15% actually are. So can you talk a little bit about why self-awareness is such an important factor and why there's such a gulf between expectations and reality? So self-awareness matters for a few different reasons. But one of the keys is that people who are self-aware understand their strengths and also their weaknesses. When I do a talk on this topic of emotional intelligence for corporate audiences or so on, I show a cartoon. And the cartoon says, I want greater self-awareness, but can I continue to be unaware of my bad qualities? And of course, the answer to that is the answer to that is no, right? So when people talk about self-awareness, we all like to think about things that we're good at. So self-awareness is, I am really good at this. I am really hitting it out of the park. Here are my strengths. And the key part of self-awareness is having that awareness, but also having an awareness of your weaknesses. And having an awareness of your weaknesses is something that honestly doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to sort of say, well, I'm really bad at, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so we tend to not focus on it. We actually tend to be pretty self-aware of things that we recognize as our strengths. Maybe other people have recognized as our strengths, but we tend to not be as self-aware of our negatives, our weaknesses, our, our faults. And what's so important about having an awareness of your weaknesses is it actually lets you put together teams effectively. So if you're in the workplace and you're like, well, I'm not very good at this. I need to, to hire someone else who's you know good at this in that sense. It also lets you work on your weaknesses. An example that I will share from my personal life is I have a dear friend who lives in California. I live in Massachusetts. So we don't get together very often, but we've written several books together. So we've written several introduction to psychology textbooks together. And we're this wonderful co-author team because basically everything that I'm horrible at, she loves. And everything that she's not so good at, I love. So for example, she really doesn't like reading the nitty gritty science research. She finds it kind of tedious and boring and I'm super nerdy. So I'm like all about immersing myself in in the research and, you know, doing that. I am very not a visual artistic person. I can't pick colors. I can't pick design, you know, any of that. And she is super visual. So she chooses all the colors for the book. She chooses the font. She chooses the page layout. You know, she chooses all of the figures in ways that make the book look really pretty, which is, of course, really important. I'm not underplaying <laughs> that. But, but the key is, is that we both recognize what we're bad at. And that really lets us work effectively. So the key aspect of self-awareness is it's having this sense of what you're bad at. And honestly, that doesn't particularly feel good for most of us. Okay. So Brene Brown did this study with uh, over 7,000 people over five years and found that on average, people can identify three emotions as they as they are feeling them, right? In the moment, happy, sad, and mad. That was the takeaway. Um, Obviously, there are lots more emotions. Those are the three people that people are actually able to identify as they're experiencing them. How important is understanding what we're feeling in the moment as opposed to reflecting on your emotions maybe after they've subsided? Um, what is, why is that so important? That, that's a wonderful question. So one of the fascinating findings in psychology is that emotions at their core often feel very similar at a physiological level. So at a physiological level, it can be very hard to disentangle exactly what these different things are. And there are ways, in fact, we can use that 
strategically, but it also means that it can be very confusing to understand why we're feeling. An example that I often give is most of us can think about a time in which you've snapped at your romantic partner. You know, you've been angry, you've been irritated, you've been short with them. And later on, you're like, you know what? I was just really exhausted. I was just really tired. And that exhaustion was kind of coming out as anger. There are lots of times in which emotions can actually be confused for one another. Maybe you're feeling the emotion anger, but really what you're feeling is sad. And instead of kind of owning the sadness in this, you feel anger at someone or something else. There are lots of ways, in fact, reality television uses this inability of ourselves to be aware of our emotions to actually create different feelings. So reality TV dating shows all have the same formula. They are trying to get people to believe they are falling in love on national television. And that's kind of hard when that person is, you know, dating 24, 25 other people and you can only see them for a couple hours a week, you know, et cetera. So what they do in reality TV dating shows is they specifically create feelings of physiological arousal. So you are feeling this intense arousal and you're transferring it and thinking, oh, I must really love you instead of thinking this arousal is caused by something else. So when you go on one of these shows, this is maybe a, a good tip for, for the younger members of your audience. They ask you, what are you afraid of? And whatever you're afraid of is what you do on the dates. So you're afraid of heights. <laughs> you do a rappelling down a, yeah. a mountain. You know, you're afraid of sharks. You're in an underwater cage, you know, feeding sharks raw meat. And they do this because they need people to feel this intense arousal. Now, what you're really feeling is I'm terrified that I'm going to die on this building or beaten by a shark. But you're not aware of that. You just think whenever I'm with so-and-so, I just feel my heart beating fast and I must be falling in love. And so honestly, we are not particularly good at identifying our emotions. And that can lead us astray in lots of different ways. This is, uh, uh, it reminds me of a thread I want to pull on, but I'm going to save it for later. So just, I want to bookmark that. Essentially emotional intuition, right? And the way it drives reason. But while we're while we're on identification of emotions. Um, what can people do to build their own self-awareness? What are some tools that are really accessible and, and, and effective? So first of all, and you asked this question earlier, there is a very simple self-report test that people can use to measure EQ. And I can actually give you a link that you can put in the show notes if people want to assess it for themselves. So, so there are self-report measures in which you can actually assess that yourself. But the other key is really kind of taking some time to self-reflect. Think about when you feel you're happiest, when you feel frustrated, when you feel confused. I think there are lots of times in our daily lives in which we sort of think about when do we feel most alive, when do we feel most invigorated, but also paying attention to your emotional feelings, that if you're feeling angry at someone or something, sort of thinking about, is this really the emotion I'm feeling or is there something else going on that's actually driving that? I remember at some point during graduate school, I was sort of consistently feeling very, very anxious during particular parts of a class. And I was going through in my mind, like, maybe I'm, I've forgotten to pay my phone bill, or maybe I've just had a fight with my mother, or you know, maybe I'm failing out of graduate school. And I've shared it with a friend, and she actually turned to me and said, you know, you drink a lot of coffee, Catherine. And I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe it's that. 
And, and honestly, it was one of these things where she was identifying what was causing my arousal in ways that I couldn't. I was searching my brain for it. And so mm-hmm. I think taking some time to sort of think about what might be going on in my life, in my body, you know, that's making me feel this way and, and taking some time to actually self-reflect and do that is really important. Reading through this material uh, and preparing for our conversation made me think of Daniel Kahneman's experiencing self and remembering self, which I think we've talked about before. And we have. it's a different kind of being aware that you're you actually have two different modes of accessing these emotions, right? One is one is as they're arising in the moment, and then your remembering self has sort of a biased view of of your uh, of your experiencing self back in the moment. Um, so what you're saying is using essentially the remembering self to reflect on those moments and what might be causing them. Absolutely. And taking the time to do so, right? Instead of just kind of rushing on and, and going through your life. But if you're feeling something, taking some time to kind of give yourself the opportunity to self-reflect is really important. Let's turn to self-regulation. So EQ uh, doesn't just measure your ability to understand what you uh, or someone else are feeling. It's also about how you can regulate your own emotions. Um, So can you explain how that self-management works? I'm sure it works in a a lot of different ways, but just an overview. How does that that self-management work? So self-management works basically in the same way that cognitive behavioral therapy works, that it really is about saying, okay, I'm feeling this way, what's going to make me feel better? So if I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling anxious, for me, what's going to help? And that could be, I'm going to take a long bath. It could be, I'm going to take a walk. It could be, I'm going to watch a funny movie, whatever it is. But really saying, if I'm feeling something that doesn't feel good, how can I self-manage? How can I self-regulate? So it's basically about self-care. And there are people who do that very effectively, and there are people who do that not so effectively. Okay, so how important, this, is, this, is, this one was interesting to me, how important is someone's uh, explanatory style and what we mean by that, whether they're optimistic or pessimistic in how well they can regulate their emotions? So basically having control over a situation is always better and believing that you have some control over that situation. So I teach a class in sports psychology and one of the key findings within that literature is that teams actually do better when they own a loss. So if you own a loss, this is an internal explanation. We lost because we didn't use good strategy. We lost because we were out of condition. We lost because, you know, et cetera. Again, something that you own. And and that really ties into the idea of recognizing weakness that we talked about before in terms of self-awareness. You might imagine it would be better for your self-confidence to say, well, we lost because the referees were unfair or the field conditions were bad or something else that's totally out of your control. But the reality is if you own a loss, you can then understand it and you can also strategize how to do it better. So we got outplayed, we've got to be in better condition. So what we're going to do is we're going to have more drills that emphasize running or cardiovascular fitness. We got outplayed because our strategy was bad, our free throw shooting was bad, whatever it is. If you own it, you can do something about it. When I have students come talk to me about how, you know, this test didn't go well, or this test was, you know, unfair, or this professor is bad, 
What I always say is, what can you do about it? Because what you can't do is get that professor fired. What you can't do is change that professor's teaching style. What you can do is say, okay, what are you going to do? And is that changing your study methods? Is that going to talk to the professor so you have a better sense of what they're expecting? But basically, the idea behind self-regulation is if you own it and you can explain it as something internally within you, then you have some control over creating a different outcome in the future. And that's actually better than saying, well, I just got to hope we have different referees next time, which is not in your control. Yeah, I want to poke into that just a little bit more because it sounds like, so So what you're saying is um, by owning it, we're not, ta- and, and thinking about what you can do, what are you going to do about the situation? You could, you know, there's a turn there that I could see a lot of people making that would be retributive or or retaliatory right or or in in some way to um to take that instruction and like you said try to get the teacher fired or try to get the refs fired or whatever but that's different from what you mean by owning it you're looking for an opportunity for self improvement right you're looking for an opportunity to to be better can you talk about the differences in those approaches because i i think we're getting at something pretty deep Right. That's a really insightful question. And so the idea there is that when bad things happen, when disappointments, rejection, failure, et cetera, happens, if you blame it on the situation, the other person, there's nothing you can do about it then. It's out of your control. Whereas if you take ownership of it, if it's your responsibility, it's within your own control, then you have the opportunity to change something and affect a different outcome. So hoping that a situation will be different is naive. And it's in fact not empowering because there's nothing you can do about it. I really hope it doesn't rain that day. You know, I really hope that their best player gets injured. You know, those are all things that you can't control. You can control things within yourself. And that's what's really important. This is, this is where I think mindfulness can be such a powerful tool. And, you know, I, I, um, uh, I, I used to practice mindfulness a lot and I've, I, I, I like to practice different modalities of meditation now, but it is one of the most sort of, uh, immediately accessible and powerful tools. I think, um, that, that people can apply to, to managing and regulating emotions. I don't know if you care to expand on that a little bit, but I'd also love to hear what you think grit has to do with this, what role grit plays in all this. Right. So, so two, two key thoughts. One, we all have the opportunity to think about things in different ways, that that's actually within ourselves. And the example of grit in particular, and you and I have also talked about this, is that when we think about grit, grit is working through, is persevering through disappointments. So there's a wonderful quote by Angela Duckworth at Penn, which is, grit is sticking with your future day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years and working really hard to make that future a reality. And this is often described in terms of delay of gratification. So the famous marshmallow test of, you know, somebody, you can have one marshmallow now. We've done that a few times. Well, we have talked about that a few times. And again, personal story, my husband, one of the marshmallow kids. Um, But that's the same example, is that really looking at the future. So right now I can make a short-term choice. And in the short term, it might feel good to say, you know, that professor is horrible or those refs were biased against us or, you know, that person that I'm dating, you know, treated me like crap, you know, they're a jerk. But again, none of those things help you change the situation and make it different. So grit is really about 
persevering over time. The other key part of this is that we all do control our thoughts. That's one of the reasons why mindfulness and meditation is so powerful. There's a wonderful study, and I believe it was done by an economist, and I'm blanking on the person who did it, but I can try to look it up. But what they did was they looked at people who all had the same job, and the job was they were janitors, custodians in a hospital. So these were all people who had the exact same job. That was their job. But what they found was that people thought about this job in very different ways. So some people thought about this job as, I wash the floors, I clean the toilets, I wash the windows. And they didn't like their job very much because they looked at it at that level. Other people with the exact same job saw it completely differently. I maintain a sterile environment in a hospital room to prevent illness and disease and infection from spreading. I am an important conduit of connection between the patient, their family, and the nursing station because I can recognize if things are not going well or somebody needs more food or some assistance. I am an important source of moral support and emotional support for patients and their families. And so there's just an example in which all these people have the same job. <laughs> but they thought about it very differently. This reminds me of Simon Sinek's uh, connection with purpose, uh, why, finding your why, right? Connection with purpose and vocation, which completely changes uh, predictions of success, actually, right? And, and satisfaction. Um, okay, uh, social awareness briefly. If most people aren't aware of their own emotions as they're feeling them, which we know that's what the research says, how can they get better at understanding other people's emotions and the dynamics in those relationships, right? So if you aren't even able to spot uh, or even label what is occurring for you in any given moment, what hope do you have at, at getting better at understanding what other people are feeling in the moment um, and how what they're feeling might be impacting the dynamic between two people? So as I described earlier in thinking about the definition of emotional intelligence, one of the key aspects of it is the, this ability to do emotion regulation comes into play, particularly during times of, of challenge, of stress, et cetera. So in a sense, and when we think about the workplace in particular, in, in a setting in which there has been something has gone wrong, you've lost an account, you've been rejected, you know, something has gone wrong everybody's emotion is probably relatively clear. Now, and by that, I mean bad, right? So some people might be feeling anger. Some people might be feeling sad. Some people might be feeling frustration. Some people might be feeling despair. But people who are high in emotional intelligence are basically good at ratcheting down the emotion, that, that making people feel calmer. So we've all worked with people at some point who when something goes wrong, it's a catastrophe. You know, this is terrible. And it's basically all alarms blazing. You know, this is awful. And a lot of blame, you know, whose fault, et cetera. People who are high in emotional intelligence, even if they can't individually identify each of the emotions that somebody's experiencing, what they're doing is they're creating an environment in which they are basically trying to take down the intensity of the emotion and to make people feel better. All right. So this one didn't go our way. Um, let's try to do something to self-reflect. Let's try not to assign blame. Let's try to kind of feel better in this situation. Let's 
kind of take it with a grain of salt. This isn't life or death. And, and so they're basically better at reducing the anxiety, the stress, the pressure, and that makes it easier to manage in that way. So they're, they're basically taking a group of people, colleagues, teams, et cetera, and they're making people replace negative emotions with more positive ones, or at least bringing down the intensity of the negative emotion. So it doesn't have to be, you can identify the emotion that each person is feeling specifically, but just kind of saying, we're going to try to improve the emotional climate of this meeting, group, office, situation. To recognize that whatever it is you might be feeling, uh, how does Susan David put it? And those emotions are data and not directives. Love it. What is the relationship now between a high emotional intelligence and being able to take a stand as a moral rebel? And you and I have talked about moral rebels in your work on the topic for uh, I don't know how many Couple episodes years, now, yeah. right? But <laughs> but now but now now let's take that and everything we've learned about uh, about moral rebels and um, and think about what high emotional intelligence brings to the table. So I, I'm going to briefly say that we actually didn't finish going through the components, and so I want to just oh okay only because it becomes relevant. So we've talked about two of, we've talked about two of the five and I'll just say very briefly so we talked about self-awareness, we talked about self-regulation. The third one is internal motivation. So this is again being driven to do something internally. That's related to some of the stuff we've talked about. But the next two are what are, are really important to set up for your question. So four is empathy. Being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So what do we know about moral rebels? Moral rebels are very good at empathy. They, in fact, are able to be, take a stand when it's difficult because they can put themselves in somebody else's shoes. How would it feel if I were in this situation? How would it feel if my sister or my mother or my boyfriend or whatever was in this situation? So moral rebels are high in empathy. That's one of their key traits. And that, in fact, allows them inspires them, almost prods them, forces them to take a stand because they are feeling empathy for people who are disadvantaged, harassed, abused, you know, in some kind of way in different settings. So, so moral rebels, high in empathy, a key component of emotional intelligence. Can I just press pause on empathy for one second and ask you a question about this? Because I've seen, I've seen, I've seen confusion pop up over how empathy is expressed in social situations. And, uh, and I think sometimes people get confused that, uh, that empathy, um, sort of is an individual or, or maybe a, a bad version of this would be, you know, projecting onto someone else what you would be feeling in a situation um, and assuming that that is their emotion. Can you talk about how this can get confused and what true empathy is versus this, um, what would be a really unhealthy projection of, uh, of emotion or assignment to someone else? Sure. So when we talk about empathy, it's really about perspective taking. It's about putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes and trying to imagine the world from their perspective. Now, people vary considerably in their ability to do that. Some people do it very readily, very easily, and some people really do not. There's sort of classic tests of emotional, I mean, of empathy. And one of them in particular is when you're watching a a TV show or even sometimes a commercial or a movie, do you start to cry if somebody else is experiencing something difficult that you can just imagine, oh, if I were in this situation, you know, I would, I would feel like this. So people who are high in empathy 
regularly and sort of consistently can see the world through somebody else's eyes. And they are, they're good at doing this kind of perspective taking. So that doesn't mean I feel bad for you or that's really awful, but it's really sort of trying to say, if this happened to me, I would want someone to do X. You know, I would want someone to stand up. I would want somebody to take a stand and people who are high in emotional intelligence are very good at doing this empathy perspective taking. And that probably makes it much easier to be a moral rebel. Mm, okay. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Now the fifth thing that. And the fifth thing, to which on. is also very related is social skills that people who are high in emotional intelligence are good at getting along with people. And all of us, literally all of us work with other people. We work with colleagues. We report to people. People report to us. We have clients. You know, we have students, whoever it is. We all work with people. And people who are high in emotional intelligence are good at teamwork. They're good at making people feel included. Mm. They're good at making people feel heard. They're good at recognizing different kinds of contributions. So in terms of, of that ability in particular playing out in moral rebels, it's that people who are moral rebels are also good at trying to get buy-in. So they have often built in some kind of goodwill and they are saying, this is important and and I've got to do this and I've got to manage this and I've got to bring other people along with me. And this yeah. ability to, again, get along with people is extraordinarily important. But thinking about what it would take using empathy, using uh, using your ability to empathize in order to persuade people to come along with you um, is something we've talked about uh, uh, at least in some in some way on the show before when we talk about moral reframing and how how effective that technique can be at making persuasive arguments. So appealing to someone else's values and how they feel about a political topic, for example, and then framing an argument that would appeal to those values, that would activate those values in the direction that you're trying to go. It's an extremely um, uh, effective way at, uh, at, at, at persuading people. So you want to say a little bit about persuasion? I will say a little bit about persuasion. I'm actually pausing because I, I was on a, a plane yesterday. I'm very behind always in my reading of non sort of urgent news. And I read a very long piece in the New York Times Magazine about the January 6th uh, committee. I don't even know when that was was published. But, but what was interesting about it is that it really described the role that Liz Cheney played in in that committee and and the control that she exerted and and I'm and I'm pausing here for a minute because what you could see with Liz Cheney is really a perfect example of a moral rebel in in every possible way like when we think about moral rebels what are they willing to do well they're willing to take a stand even when it costs them and there's a wonderful quote in that piece which I think Liz Cheney has said publicly many times which is that she had a very easy primary to win to return to Congress. Very easy. And she lost because she took a stand. And, and that's, that is really the epitome of being a moral rebel. So now I'm pausing with your question about persuasion because actually one would have hoped, and I'm sure on some level she and, and Adam Kinzinger hoped that they would be persuasive to their colleagues that they would not be standing alone. And yet, by and large, they were not persuasive, again, at least in a public-facing way. 
I, I think both of them describe how in private and the elevator, people are like, really good job or way to go or something. But so I'm sort of pausing a little bit because I think there are also times in which moral rebels are saying, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to do it if it costs me. And I'm going to hope that that brings other people along because I want to be on the right side of history. And, and there are times in which they actually are not persuasive. And so I guess that's why I'm kind of pausing in my yeah. answer to your question, yeah. because I believe there were times in which people felt that the actions of a few moral rebels were going to be persuasive in bringing, mm. I think, the the GOP in particular along, a, a larger number of people. Yeah. And I don't feel we can honestly say that that has happened. I think that's totally right. And I, and I, no, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> as much as um, I would like to say they were very persuasive, I, I'm, I'm struggling with that part. I, I agree with you. I don't think that they were broadly persuasive. I think some, you know, there is some tiny piece of, of, of the electorate that's, that, that has been moved, but certainly not enough to be decisive in a primary, right? As a matter of fact, it costs them more than, than they, they more more than they may have won. I think my point about reframing is, um, you know, if, if you are going to make an argument for someone to change their position or come along to your position on something, and in this case, it would have been, you know, holding Donald, Donald Trump accountable for the, you know, his, his uh, likely crimes against the country. Um, well, appealing to a value set that is, uh, that is common, right? And in this case, it would have been sort of faithfulness to the Constitution. Uh, um, is a is a more effective way to to bring someone along to your position, right? Appealing to the value set of the other um, is a more effective way to bring them along. It just turned out that in this case, those values weren't actually deeply held. I think, or or to the extent that they were understood, they weren't actually deeply held. So, I would say. Um, uh, the the, the the assumption, all of our hope that everyone everyone in the country shares this um, deep and abiding uh, faith in uh, the Constitution, or at least it's you know right, it actually doesn't exist for a large portion of the Republican base, and that is what has been so shocking and 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 demoralizing. Um, uh, but in any case, um, <laughs> yeah. So one thing that does occur to me is that. Yeah. A key aspect of this idea of empathy and perspective taking and social skills and emotional intelligence is also trying to find a way for people to change their mind, engage in a different set of behaviors, go in a different direction in a way that doesn't have to say, I was wrong, I was dumb, I was stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So part of it is kind of trying to yeah. get, and so that's also a part of persuasion, right? How do you get people from one view to another in a way that kind of is face-saving? So it's been interesting to sort of see the different approaches that candidates, I think we can call them candidates for the nomination in 2024, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, et cetera, that they're taking sort of different strategies. And some of them are, Trump was great. Trump was our guy. And we really appreciate it. And now we're going to go in a younger direction, or now we're going to go in this kind of direction. And then other people, Chris Christie, are saying, you know, Trump was wrong and lost, and then he lost again, and, you know, et cetera. And, and that's not the horse. And so that's an example, too, and that people high in emotional intelligence so kind of try to help people go in a new direction 
in particularly strategic ways. This is such a good point, and I think explains a lot because you're talking about like an egoic injury, right? You're ta- you're helping people avoid an injury to the ego, or uh, or or really keeping that consistency principle intact. You're trying to make it less psychologically painful for the person, right? Absolutely, it's easier to do, right? And I yeah. think we're going to see that kind of play out in terms of yeah. people are going to I be so asked too. about Trump and January 6th, and we're going to see how how do they navigate that. This is really, I, I just want to underscore this entire point because we often have conversations both on and off the show uh, about, well, what's going to happen to the Republican Party? And are we ever going to have a reckoning about the crimes of Donald Trump and all the terrible things that he did within the Republican Party? And the answer is no, we're never going to have that. Um, and everyone's really, I mean, not, not, in, not in a way where the Republican Party all gets together and holds hands and says, we're going to purge this from our midst. It's never going to happen. Uh, and and part of the reason is exactly what we're talking about now. Like it, it will uh, it will evolve over time in a way that causes the least um, uh, psychological injury. Um, anyway, I, I I wanted to make that connection to another conversation we have a lot, and it's re- it just adds some 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 richness to that discussion. So uh, back to moral rebels then. So <laughs> high emotional intelligence. And and being able to take a stand and be a moral rebel, right? How does it help people deal with, for example, the fear of speaking out? How does it impact their ability to be persuasive? Um, uh, and what other connections would you make to your work on on moral rebels? So moral rebels are good at regulating their own emotions. So they understand that the worst thing that can happen is not that someone doesn't like me, right? And so for, for many people who are less good at regulating emotions, the idea of not being liked, of taking a stand feels extraordinarily difficult. I, I know the right thing to do, but if I do that, people aren't going to like me. You know, I'm going to be rejected. I'm, you know, I'm going to be unelected, you know, et cetera. And moral rebels are good at managing their own emotions. So yeah, it's too bad if that person doesn't like me. Now I'm going to move on and have my breakfast. And and they don't sort of get caught up in it. So I think that people who have the ability to be a moral rebel are able to kind of say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> I'm going to let that go. Returning to the example of Liz Cheney, the the piece very clearly describes how she didn't even really campaign for it. She knew she was going to lose. She'd kind of come to terms with that. And she conceded early and was like, okay, I'm back to work. And it's not a sort of make it or break it. So people who are high in emotional intelligence are good at kind of keeping things in their own perspective. This isn't life or death. And if people don't like me, that's not the end of the world. And in fact, if some people don't like me, that might even be kind of a badge of honor in that way, right? Badge of honor, right. A a badge of honor. And the, the piece also describes very clearly how Liz Cheney was very effective at building connections, particularly with other conservative women who maybe wouldn't have wanted to talk to Adam Schiff about you know, what they had observed. But Liz Cheney was very good at creating a safe space, creating a shared understanding. So lots of evidence came out because of her ability in a unique situation to use particular skills of building empathy, social skills, maintaining privacy. And that, in fact, was extraordinarily useful in some of the witness testimony that came forward. I want to talk about the um, the dark side of emotional intelligence for for just a minute. Um, 
because I don't want people to walk away thinking that this is um, that this is only a tool for good, right? That high emotional intelligence is only only a tool for good. Back in 2014, uh, Adam Grant, the uh, the ubiquitous organizational psychologist, he's everywhere on my social media. He is now, everywhere. <laughs> wrote, literally wrote, everywhere. Wrote a piece. <laughs> he is literally everywhere. Uh, he wrote a piece for the Atlantic about um, what he called the dark side of emotional intelligence. So. Um, I wonder how I would love if you just explain how people with high levels of emotional intelligence can use it um, in a manipulative way to manipulate others. Um, what do you have to say about that? So the challenge, of course, is that when you are high in emotional intelligence, uh, you can also you can use that in any different ways. So you can use it to manipulate people. You can use it to trick people. You can use it in terms of achieving self-serving goals in that way. And so the challenge is that it can be effective in, in ways that are not necessarily good. So people who are high in narcissism, for example, can be very persuasive, can be very compelling, uh, can be very appealing, and can get people to follow them in that way. People who are high in emotional intelligence may be Machiavellian, right? So they may be able to sort of use emotion as a way of getting people to do something they want or getting people to carry out a task that maybe they don't want to do themselves or have to own. And so the dark side is really that this ability to do regulation of emotions, as we've talked about a lot, your own and other people's, well, you can regulate emotions for lots of different purposes, including inspiring people to do things that may in fact not be beneficial. Which probably brings us to why it's important to have a moral or ethical backbone to emotional intelligence, right? Um, do you want to introduce that, uh, that, that dynamic? Like, we don't want you know, to create sociopaths running around and using their emotional intelligence to try to manipulate themselves and manipulate others in society. Um, so why is it, obviously, we should have a moral or ethical backbone, right? And a, a framework. What are the various moral ethical frameworks out there, right? How, how, is, how do you see the relationship between this and, you know, without surveying all of moral psychology in a, in a, in a nutshell, right? Maybe you can just talk about the relationship and where people could go to look for that. Sure. So I want to be clear that when we talk about moral rebels, moral rebels aren't necessarily about people who are practicing certain morals better than other people. They're basically people who are willing to take a stand even when it costs them. So the example that I often give is you can be a moral rebel by being pro-life and speaking out about your views in a crowd of people who are pro-choice. You can also be a moral rebel in the opposite. So being pro-choice in a crowd of pro-life people and, and speaking to that. So when we talk about moral rebels, it's really about taking a stand even when it is hard to do so and even when it will cost you. Now, when we think about the, the behavior that we are hoping people will emulate, and I think this is for ourselves, you know, for our family members, our colleagues, our children, what we're really hoping is that people will do the right thing. So that people will take a stand and they'll call out somebody for bullying or sexual harassment or homophobia or something that is problematic. 
And that's, of course, completely different than saying, I'm going to use my emotional intelligence right. skills to get somebody <laughs> to buy a product or vote for me or do my dirty work in that sense. So when we talk about- We do that in the dark arts of political consulting. Exactly. Well, right. I mean, maybe there, I'm sure there are people who do that, right? I mean, there, there, there are certainly lots of examples of campaign ads that have used those skills of empathy to kind of say, oh, you know, we're the same. And, and of course, you're not. But so when we talk about being a moral rebel, it's really about saying, this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to do it even when it's hard. In thinking about having a, a moral or ethical backbone or, uh, or rudder, right, to emotional intelligence, uh, there are different ethics that we can that we can use. One of them is a safety ethic. One of them is a pro-social ethic. I wonder if you can explain how these two different approaches can lead to different results, uh, different behavioral results for people who have high emotional intelligence. So there's really interesting work uh, in the field of moral development. So this is a little bit out of my you know super zone of comfort, but basically this work is focusing on what happens during childhood. So there's a very famous theory within developmental psychology on attachment. And this is about the bonds that you form with your primary caregiver basically leads you to develop a sense of, is the world a safe place? Are people generally good? And some babies, children, people grow up with this sort of feeling like, yes, the world is good and predictable and safe and people are available and there for me. And other people develop what we call an insecure attachment in which the world is basically seen as unsafe. People disappear. People abandon you. People aren't always looking out for your best interest. And so these different views that we can develop about people in the world can also lead us to have different kinds of mindsets. So people who have a safety ethic are basically really worried about other people in the world. And therefore, when things go wrong, when they face challenges or disappointments, they can become defensive. They can become hostile. They can blame someone else for what happened. And that, again, makes it much harder to sort of step up and do the right thing. Whereas people who have a pro-social, a much more positive ethic, have a belief that other people are good and available and kind, and therefore they are acting in that sort of service. This really relates to what we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation also, which is about self-awareness, that when things go wrong, can you say, huh, you know what? I really could have done that better. I really could have done that differently. I didn't approach that in the right way, as opposed to being like, wasn't me, it was you. The example that I often give to my students is we've all been in a situation working in a team in which something goes wrong and there's always somebody who can blame everybody else except themselves for what happened. People high in emotional intelligence are very good at sharing the credit and owning the blame. So if something goes well, it's, well, you did it and you did it and all these different people did it. And I really just played a small part. Fascinating. Okay. So since we called back to the beginning of the episode, that thread that I wanted to tug on was, uh, was about moral intuition and Jonathan Haidt's work in The Righteous Mind. Jonathan Haidt's a professor of moral psychology at NYU. Um, and The Righteous Mind was this enormous contribution to that, that body of work. 
and uh, and in the beginning, he talks about this metaphor of uh, moral intuition essentially being an elephant, and then your reason, your 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 rational self being a rider on top of the elephant, trying to essentially not really steer the elephant, but make excuses for the directions that it's going, right? And I and I love this because it's so, it's such a useful way to think about not just. Not just emo- like uh, moral intuition, but emotions in general, right? This is sort of how they happen with us. They, 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 they occur. They rise up, and then our our thinking self, uh, our, our remembering self, rather, right, will make excuses or try to rationalize them. Um, uh, so I, I wanted to think about that in terms of um, sort of uh, emotional intelligence and also this um, the safetyism versus versus pro-social uh, uh, moral development and. Um, and how people can cultivate a more pro-social ethic, especially when we're seeing lots of young people who are who are essentially operating under a safety ethic, where the world is dangerous and everybody needs to be protected from everything, and 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 how that's really stifling resilience. So one of the key things that that I talk a lot about with my college students is is being able to separate something that happens to you from something that reflects who you are. And, and I'm going to describe this. So here's an example. You get a C on a paper. You can interpret that as I'm going to be a horrible college student or I should never write again or I should never take a class that involves writing. Or you can take it as, huh, this didn't go well. What could I do better? And I think the challenge is that when things go wrong for people, and the reality is things go wrong all the time. Every book that I've published has gotten rejected by multiple agents and publishers before it eventually appears in press. Um, And and so you have to be resilient in the face of failure and recognizing that failure is information. Failure is information. Okay, this pitch was wrong. This approach was wrong. This tactic was wrong. And that can be true in our personal lives. So if I have a fight with my spouse, it doesn't mean I'm getting divorced and the relationship is over. It means we got to be better at working through this one you know, particular issue of schedule management or whatever it is. And so I think the key is, is that people who are high in emotional intelligence can say, this thing went poorly and it doesn't mean I am a lousy person, athlete, student, mother, colleague, politician, whatever it is. It's that this thing went poorly. And I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to move on. And, and that's the key is that I think people who are low in emotional intelligence, when something goes poorly, it is a calamity because it's the assumption that this is everything. I will die alone and I will be fired, you know, and bankrupt and I will never have any friends and, you know, et cetera, as opposed to being able to say this bad thing happened. And, and, I, and then it's not so scary to own it because you can own it. Because it's just this one thing. It's just, yeah, this not, this paper got rejected. You know, this this relationship isn't going well. It's one thing and I can own it. I can learn from it uh, and I can move beyond it. And it's not all of who I am. And so to me, that's one of the real things is that when you have confidence in yourself, it really allows you to buffer failure and to be resilient. This is Carol Dweck's uh, fixed versus right. Fixed versus uh, fi- growth, fixed, absolutely. Fixed versus fixed versus growth. growth mindset, yep. right? Fixed versus and, growth, and seeing and seeing the seeing the world that way can can sort of rob you of the view that this is an opportunity, as as terrible as it might feel in the moment. That this still is an opportunity that uh, for 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 you to grow and to be better, right? And. Uh, 
God, there's so many things I I <laughs> could, could talk to you about. Should we should we maybe touch on you know from a thirty thousand foot view? What does emotional intelligence have to do with helping people continue to fight to preserve democracy? And what what are some things that listeners can do right now to to build their own to improve their own emotional intelligence? Um, you mentioned the assessment uh, at the top of the episode. We'll put the link in the show notes there. Is there anything else that you would uh, suggest? So I think emotional intelligence plays out in a ton of different ways in terms of politics right now. So first, I think it's really important to try to perspective take and understand if someone has a different view than you have about a political issue. So that ability to do empathy, that ability to do perspective taking, that ability to hear where someone else is coming from strikes me as an important way of sort of returning civil dialogue and sort of civil connection in this country. I think we can actually see different ways in which people are owning failure in political parties in very, very clear ways. So there are a group of people in the Republican Party who are saying, I mean, Carrie Lake, I think, believes she is the governor of Arizona, right, <laughs> currently, so that, that we can see people owning failure in very different ways. People saying, no, you know, we, we should stick with Trump you know, that's who we should go with. And other people saying, you know, no, we're going to let that go. So I think there are all ways in which we can sort of think about and conceptualize how do we respond to political differences. I think it's also clear that there will be difficult political issues coming down the pike. There, there may well be some difficult Supreme Court rulings that people are facing and that we will see come out in June. I think that seems quite likely based on the past. And I think being able to do emotional, intelligent self-regulation of emotions in that time. So, so what can you do? And when there is a difficult Supreme Court decision or an election doesn't go your way, you can dwell in it or you can do something that is active and that is productive. And that could be donating money. That could be donating time. That could be taking a stand in an op-ed or in your community in some way. But so I think for me, there are lots of opportunities, as I'm sure you and your listeners know well, for failure, <laughs> rejection, bad outcomes in politics. And, and the question is really, what do you do with that? And instead of saying, well, you know, this, this happened, so now there is no hope, there's all different kinds of things that we can do both locally and in a broader scale, nationally. Okay, Catherine, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? We've told them about your book, Why We Act, uh, numerous times. Everyone should definitely go pick that up on Moral Rebels. Anything else you want to mention? Well, I will, I will mention one thing very briefly, and maybe this is a topic for a future episode, but I've been working for close to a year now on a really interesting and timely topic with my students, which is examining police culture in the United States. So I am on the board of an organization that runs out of Georgetown University Law called ABLE, which is Active Bystandership in Law Enforcement. And over the last year, I have worked with five undergraduates at Amherst doing both surveys and qualitative interviews of police officers across the country specifically examining traits of moral rebels. We're looking at moral courage and we're looking at empathy and we're looking at whether those traits predict officers' willingness to speak up when they see 
misbehavior or misconduct happening in their department with their colleagues. So we are in the middle, literally, of analyzing this data right now, working on a paper. We will be going to Atlanta in a few weeks to present this work at a conference. And I'd love to share more about our findings with your listeners once we have finished crunching the numbers. But it seems like a really important and timely topic. And what we're hoping is that this information will actually help us figure out ways of cultivating these traits within law enforcement. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for this. So let's definitely bookmark that because I can imagine the research being extremely consequential for public policy debates. So yeah, let us know when you're done um, crunching the numbers. Um, We'd love to talk about it. Fingers (laughs) crossed. Okay. (laughs) All right, Catherine, have a great day, week, et cetera. Um, Thank you again for making the time and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.